and welcome to This Week I Learned, your audio guide to the most surprising discoveries and fascinating studies of the week. I'm your host, Lauren Hansen. This week I learned that dogs may actually be smarter than cats. Yes, the perennial debate just encountered a major twist, thanks to science. A new study out of Vanderbilt University took a closer look at the brains of carnivores of various sizes. Cats, dogs, bears, raccoons, lions. They were specifically looking at the number of neurons in the cerebral cortex, the part of the brain associated with thinking, planning, and complex behavior, which are all hallmarks of intelligence. Researchers wanted to see how the number of neurons related to the relative size of the different brains. And what was interesting was that dogs had the most neurons despite the fact that they didn't have the largest brain. The study found that dogs have about 530 million cortical neurons. Cats have less than half of that. For a comparison, humans have much, much more, about 16 billion. Dogs even beat out all the big carnivores too. The striped hyena, the African lion, and the brown bear all had larger brains than dogs, but fewer neurons. What this study means for that ancient adversarial relationship between cats and dogs is that dogs likely have the biological capability of doing much more complex and flexible thinking in their lives than cats can. Ultimately, the absolute number of neurons an animal has, especially in the cerebral cortex, likely determines the richness of their internal mental state, and their ability to predict what is about to happen in their environment based on past experiences. Now, the lead researcher did admit she is, quote, 100% a dog person, but bias aside, this study may just be a win for dog people everywhere. This week I learned the trick to learning a new skill faster. Fellow piano lesson alumni will probably cringe at the sound of scales. Practicing those scales over and over and over again was supposed to be the best way to master it. But according to a recent study, there may be a quicker and more enjoyable way to improve. Modify your training. In a study, researchers had 86 volunteers try to learn a new skill. They had to move a cursor on a computer screen by squeezing a small device instead of the usual way of moving a mouse around a countertop. The volunteers were split into three groups and each spent 45 minutes practicing this new skill. Six hours later, one group was asked to repeat the same exact training exercise. Group 2 was asked to perform a slightly different version of the training exercise, and Group 3 only completed the first training exercise, so they acted as the control. At the end, all groups were tested on how accurately and quickly they could perform this new skill. As you might imagine, the control group, the one and done, did the worst. 
But surprisingly, group one, the repeat group, did worse on the test than those that had to vary their training slightly. The six-hour time gap was also a telling tool. Previous neurological research has shown that six hours is how long it takes for our memories to reconsolidate, meaning memories can be recalled and made stronger. But there is a caveat. Don't mix things up too wildly. The key is adjusting things subtly. If you make the altered task too different, you lose out on the gain, and it just becomes a totally new task you have to learn. But if you find that sweet spot, you could potentially achieve more improvements in your motor skills for the same amount of practice time. This week I learned that every year, Canada gifts Boston a giant Christmas tree. It is a festive and joyous tradition that has very dark origins. It's 1917, and World War I has finally swept the United States up into its grinding war machine overseas. Allies are using the ports along the eastern seaboard to send and receive necessary supplies like explosives. In December of that year, the French freighter, a ship called Mont Blanc, had stopped in New York. It was being packed with dynamite, TNT, and a poisonous chemical that was going to be put into shells and aimed at the enemy back on the front lines. Now, these items were incredibly dangerous, so they were being very carefully packed to ensure a safe passage abroad. But according to the author of a new book, The Great Halifax Explosion, the French government at the last minute asked for 400 barrels of airplane fuel. The fuel was carelessly loaded on top of the ship. After being packed up, the Mont Blanc makes its way up the coast to Halifax in Nova Scotia. In the narrow Halifax Harbor is another container ship, an empty one, that is coming out. The thing about Mont Blanc is that its contents were a secret. For security reasons, only the people on board and a few people at each harbor could know what was in it. So when the captain of the other container ship was aggressively making his way out of the harbor, he did not know that what was coming towards him was a veritable bomb. The harbor was incredibly narrow by nautical standards, and the outgoing ship was eager to leave and was coming out too fast. As it's coming out, the Mont Blanc is trying to enter, but it's being incredibly cautious, hugging the opposite bank. But as the two ships get closer in this narrow passage, both lose their nerve and make a fatal mistake. The Mont Blanc captain decides to cut to one side very quickly to avoid the other ship. The outgoing ship at the very same moment suddenly backs up, which sends its bow directly into the Mont Blanc. Now, if this were any other ship, this collision would have been inconsequential. In fact, in busy harbors during wartime, such nicks happened all the time. But the Mont Blanc isn't your average ship. It's a fuse waiting to blow. When the outgoing ship strikes it, the loosely packed fuel is knocked over and lit. It's 8.46 in the morning on December 6, 1917, and the Mont Blanc is on fire. 
Now, the 40 or so crew members on board know exactly what's coming with that fire. So they hightail it out of there in two rowboats going as fast and as far away as possible, which leaves the Mont Blanc without any supervision. So the massive burning ship drifts into a pier at the end of the harbor. Now, besides the burning ship docked at the pier, it's really just another weekday. Kids are walking to school and men are walking off to the factory. So the spectacle draws a crowd of people who admire the giant flame in wonder. But inside the ship is a ticking time bomb. the temperature of the ship skyrockets to 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is six times hotter than molten lava. And that causes everything inside to explode. The explosion is wildly violent, extending in all directions at a speed that is four times faster than sound. The ship disintegrates and is essentially sent two miles up into the air into a mushroom cloud of smoke, ash, and debris. Half of the town is completely disseminated, but it's not over yet. The force of the explosion sends the harbor water into a tsunami, a 35-foot wave that hits the shore, dragging any survivors back into its watery depths. Now, the atomic bomb was still nearly 30 years away, but later the architect of the A-bomb calculated that the force of the Halifax explosion was about one-third to one-fifth as powerful as the bomb we dropped on Hiroshima in 1945. Some 2,000 people would die that day, about 20% of the city's entire population. Another 9,000 were injured. There were so many dead that public funerals were held in the streets. According to the Canadian Broadcast Corporation, one local mortuary held 30 to 40 funerals a day. But it could have been so much worse had it not been for the city of Boston. You see, Boston was meticulously planning for the what-ifs of the war, unlike any other city. It had on hand an army of nurses and doctors and enough supplies to set up several temporary hospitals. When officials got wind of the Halifax explosion, all of the war preparations, along with trained professionals like welders, were packed into ships and trains and sent east to put the city back together again. The aid workers set up hospitals and tents. They fixed homes and shoveled the snowy streets looking for survivors. When Christmas approached, Bostonians put up trees to help ease the suffering of the orphan kids. This kind of relief effort went on for months. The following year, the city of Halifax sent Boston a giant Christmas tree in thanks and remembrance for its help on that tragic day. Later, in 1971, just as the generation who lived through the tragedy was fading, the city of Halifax renewed this tradition and sent a Christmas tree to Boston in honor of the city's generosity all those years ago. And a Christmas tree has been sent every year since. The 
This week I learned that whales exfoliate their skin. Yep, that intense human need to slough off dead skin with a pumice stone is a habit shared by our massive mammalian friends. Researchers noticed the habit quite by accident. They were studying bow-headed whales in the Canadian Arctic and noticed when their subjects traveled south for the summer, they performed this funny little dance. They would swim up to shallow water and rub themselves on the rocks in the bay. They would roll onto their side, even do headstands and lift their tails out of the water to touch almost every inch of their up to 60 feet bodies on the rock's rough, relieving surface. This exfoliating habit likely stretches back centuries. Around 1845, whalers started calling bowheads rock-nosed whales after seeing them rub their heads on big boulders. And several subsequent papers noted similar behaviors, though they wrongfully concluded that the whales were using the rocks to rest. Alas, the rocks were much more useful. Whales do need to shed their skin. It's called molting. And the molting habits of whales generally divide into two camps. On the one hand, you have the continuous molters, which is most whales, who, like humans and dolphins and porpoises, shed their skin and hair a little bit at a time throughout the year. On the other hand, you have the seasonal shedders. Certain cold water whale species like belugas and narwhals slough off their dead skins during the summer when they relocate to warmer climates. And the bowheads, it seems, fall into this seasonal camp. Bowheads live most of the year in the Arctic but have long summered in more temperate waters. And what's interesting is that it wasn't always clear why bowheads migrated, but this study confirms a long-time suspicion. Now, plenty of Arctic marine mammals make a tropical trek, but often their intentions are either to give birth or find more food. The tropical exfoliation may help the bowheads kill two birds with one stone. These whales do come south to feed, and because the cold waters of their winter home can prevent the molting from happening naturally, they get the chance to shed the old and regenerate the new while on their summer vacation. And that does it for this episode of This Week I Learned. Look out for new episodes every Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you'd like to read more about any of the facts I've mentioned, you can head on over to theweek.com slash podcasts, where you'll also find our 7-Minute Opinions and 7-Minute Explainer series. And if you've come across any scientific tidbits, surprising discoveries, or historical revelations that you'd like to share, email me. You can reach me at podcasts at theweek.com. Until next week, I'm Lauren Hansen, and thank you so much for listening. 